Okay, we're continuing in our series of messages from the gospel according to John. I've titled the whole series, The Message Became Flesh. And uh, I really think that is the whole point of the gospel, to see what it is God was saying when he said, I'm going to become a man. And John is unique in the gospel writers in interpreting the whole act of incarnation as communication. In the beginning was the word, the message, the communication, and the communication was with God, and the communication was God, and that communication took on flesh and dwelt among us. So every, every sermon from this series, hopefully, if I'm doing it right, will be telling us something that Jesus came here to tell us. We'll be communicating something he came to tell us in the uniqueness of the incarnation. I was looking at the passage this week, uh, and it got me thinking about moments in life where maybe I have feared for my life. Have you ever had a moment in life where you thought, you know, I just might not make it? Uh, I'm reminded of a, a moment I had like that when I was, and I don't remember exactly, I was 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there, early teen. Um, and we lived in Badajoz, Spain at that point. My dad had started a church there, and he was pastoring it. And uh, our, the, the neighborhood we lived in was called Los Montitos, which is the little hills. And it's because it was built on some little hills. And the way, there was only one road that kind of led into this neighborhood. And it went, uh, basically climbed for a kilometer, which is like, 0.62 miles, something like that. And uh, it, it was like a straight one kilometer long climb uh, until you got into the neighborhood. And we had bikes and loved to ride around. I didn't go down that hill very often because then you had to come back up it. But I rode around in the neighborhood a lot on my bikes to the point that uh, by the point I'm talking to you about, uh, my bike had lost its brakes, front and rear brakes uh, from abuse and uh, what I did was I took the front, um, oh, what do you call that thing that covers the wheel? Fender, thank you. I took the front fender off my bike so that I could put my foot there, and, and that's how I, br I slowed down when I needed to. Um, and that was, that was all I had. Um, well, one time we were at some kind of a church event, and everybody was up there. It must have been a spiritual retreat. We were all up there, and we were all going down the hill to go somewhere else to do something, and I was going to ride my bike, and uh, one of these other kids, one of our youth, of course, I'm saying youth, he was a full-grown man. He had to be 18 or 19, Kiko Calderon. Uh, I, he, he asked if he could get a ride. I said, oh, sure, you know, hop on the back. And my little bike had one of these little racks in the back, you know, for like books or not adults, but uh, so he hopped on the back there. And I realized very quickly that this was a bad idea because we started down that hill and I was doing this, but forget it, you know. I, I, very quickly we were going so fast that I, we, I would kill us if I tried to keep braking that way. So I just grabbed the handlebars and uh, braced myself and tried to avoid the biggest potholes while managing the extra weight of somebody that was heavier than I was in the back and there was a curve about halfway down the hill, and I remember leaning so hard 
to not go off into the ditch going faster than I have in my life to this day ever gone on a bike. Um, and I managed to just pull that corner. I mean, we, we just managed to do that. And then eventually it tapers a little. So by the time we reached the end of this road, we weren't going as fast as we had been going. I still couldn't brake. Uh, but this road ended in a T. And this other road was the road to Cordoba. So people drove on that road at, you know, I'm going to a different town speeds, you know. It, that's the kind of road it was. Uh, and I knew coming up to that stop sign that we could not stop. We just flew into that intersection, and uh, there happened to be nobody on the road at that moment. And we all survived. It's a great story. I, I, it, it cracks me up. But uh, I was aware then, and I'm aware now, that that very easily could have been the last day of my life. It could have all ended right then. A car coming at the wrong time. We hit that curb and went off into the ditch at, on that curve. Uh, I could have killed myself. I could have killed the guy riding behind me. How do we deal with that? With those moments in life where we become painfully aware of the fact that our existence does not depend on us, that we could lose it all like that. Um, for most of us, that causes a tremendous amount of fear. Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, an answer to fear. We're in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. Let's read verses 16 and 17. Now, when it was evening, his disciples went down to the sea, and getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So, John sets the scene. Now, this, if you remember from last week, this follows immediately after Jesus has miraculously fed a crowd of well over 5,000 people. 5,000 was just the men, and that didn't count women and children. So, a huge crowd with five barley loaves and two fish. He fed the whole crowd. Um, so, uh, after that has happened, and this miraculous show of provision that Jesus has done, we're told in Matthew and Mark that Jesus actually tells the disciples, get on a boat and head back over to Capernaum. And John doesn't mention that, so it kind of looks like the disciples just up and left Jesus there. Uh, but that's not what happened. Jesus actually instructed them to, to go. Uh, but here it is. Uh, evening falls. The crowds are dispersing. They've had their fill. They're going back home. And... Uh, the disciples get on a boat to sail back to Capernaum. So in the, they're in the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're sailing to the northwestern side of it. Uh, it's about six or seven miles. Um, so they're, they're heading across uh, in a boat, and uh, they're heading to Capernaum. And the story starts, I love the narrative uh, abilities of John. The story starts to have some hints that something might not go well. He mentions that it had already become dark, so we make the mental adjustment, okay, so there's no light. They're out on the lake. It's nighttime, but, you know, that's fine. 
Among the disciples, four of them were professional fishermen who were accustomed, we know from the gospel stories, to actually spending all night out on the lake fishing and then coming in with their catch in the morning to sell it. So being on the lake at night should be no problem. These guys knew what they were doing. They knew their way around a boat, and they knew this lake. They had been fishing on it their whole lives. Some of you know some lakes around here that way. Uh, they, they knew it. Uh, but there's something ominous about noticing, and it had become dark, and even more ominous. Jesus had not yet come to them. They're without Jesus. Now there's a note of hope there. He had not yet come to them. So John's kind of showing his hand. Eventually Jesus is going to rejoin them. Um, So they're not without Jesus forever. But I think at this point in the story, the disciples probably think, we got this, we'll head on to Capernaum and Jesus can do his spiritual thing, praying up in the mountains and he'll rejoin us when he's ready to do something else. Um, Easy peasy. Except, verse 18, and the sea was stirred up by a great wind blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, So it's dark, it's nighttime, all of a sudden a storm hits them. They're in the middle of the lake. And uh, this is the kind of thing where you're not using sails because that is madness. Uh, You close up the sails, you pull out the oars and say, let's let's head head for land. Let's get off the lake. Uh, To this day, I'm told, even with motorized boats the way we have them today, Motorized boats stay off the lake when these kinds of winds blow into the the lake of Galilee. Uh, So it's all of a sudden out of nowhere, everything falls apart. And I, I try to envision what it was like for the disciples. I would imagine that rowing one mile is tiresome. Three or four, I bet it starts, you start to notice it in the arms and back. Especially if you're not just rowing yourself, you're rowing a boat with at least 12 people. Now, there probably were more than that because Jesus didn't just travel with the 12. He had women that were part of the group, and uh, there were probably maybe 15 people on this boat, and they are there putting their backs into it. And I wonder, I wonder if there was this moment where they're beginning to feel the fatigue set in, and they're realizing we might not make it. I don't see land anywhere. Who knows how far off course they may have been rowing. Who knows when it's dark and there are clouds and you can't judge what direction you're in. I I suspect none of them had a handy compass in their pocket. They might have gone way off course. Who knows? But three or four miles of rowing hard and wondering if this wave is the one that's going to turn the whole thing upside down and we're going to sink to the bottom of the lake. All of a sudden, they didn't have it. All of a sudden, their lives were hanging by a thread. And I'm sure they thought, man, why in the world did Jesus send us alone? Why isn't he here? If he were here, God wouldn't let this boat sink. They felt alone. And they're probably wondering, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he's being all spiritual up there on the mountain praying and, 
asking the Father what to do next. And I hope the Father's telling him where he's going to find 12 new disciples because these are all about to drown. Let me finish reading verse 19. Um, So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they see Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. I really try to wonder what that might have been like. The adrenaline's pumping, you think you're going to die. And all of a sudden you see something that is impossible. You're three, four miles away from shore. And you see somebody walking on the lake. What does the human brain do with that? The other gospel writers tell us they thought he was a ghost. That would be the next place I think most of our brains would go. Oh, my goodness. And all of a sudden, all of the campfire ghost stories come flooding back. This is an omen. No doubt this was some poor sailor that died on the lake, and he's come to welcome us to the grave. They're frightened. I love how understated John is about it. I think Mark says they were terrified. This, I'm sure they interpreted this when they first saw it as an omen, a sign. That's it. You're right. You're not going to make it. Say your prayers because you're coming to join the rest of us here in the grave. I'm sure they thought it was all over. I have a question from these opening verses. Four of the disciples were professional fishermen who made a living on the Lake of Galilee. No doubt they felt confident heading out on the lake. All that quickly changed, however. How confident do you feel about your level of control in life? Let me read verse 20. But he says to them, It is I, fear not. There's so much in those two sentences. Actually, in the Greek, what he says there is ego I me. Now, the sense of it, you would translate it, it is I. But literally, uh, it, it just is I am. I am. That ego I me, if we were in the first century and we were pulling out our handy copy of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and looked up some passages, we would find that ego I me in a, a lot of really important verses of the Old Testament. Exodus 3, that moment that changed Moses' life forever. He's out there strolling with his sheep and sees a bush burning but it's not consumed by the fire. And he draws near, and it's Moses' encounter with God. And God says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to get my people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses starts presenting all kinds of problems with that scenario. And one of them is, verse 13, if I go to the Israelites and tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? Moses says, if they want to know who you are, who are you? What do I say? 
the response in verse 14, I am the one being. In the Septuagint, ego I me, I am. God chose to identify himself to Moses and to Israel as I am. I think there's something tremendously significant about that choice of words. You think about it. You're asking God, how do I tell people who you are? God doesn't say, well, I'm the God of the mountains. I'm the God of the sun, the moon, and the stars. I'm the God of the ocean. That's the way man-made gods worked. We picked a little piece of creation and connected a God to it. So you had a God for the mountain and a God uh, for the ocean and a God for this and a God for that. And you even started attaching gods to particular professions and it's kind of like what people do sometimes with saints today, right? You assign a little corner of life to each one. That's what they did with gods back then. And what they did was look out on the night sky and project themselves onto the stars. Because the gods of the ancients were just human beings uh, with a lot more power. You study Greek mythology, there's all, I mean, it's, it's, you could make a soap opera out of it. it. They're just as corrupt and selfish and everything as any human being because when we make up our own gods, we just make up what we are and project it out there. Well, God didn't want that to be a misunderstanding. So when Moses asks, who are you? God says, God doesn't appeal to a little piece of creation and say, I'm the God of this, even though everything in creation speaks of who God is. Everything in creation bears the fingerprints of the one who made it. And the mountains speak of the God who is steadfast and sure and strong. And the skies speak of his beauty and glory. And every aspect of creation says something of who made it. But you know, you could take all of creation, the whole universe, and it still wouldn't say everything there is to say about who God is because he is more. So when God tells Moses, this is who I am, he doesn't connect it to anything in creation. He says, I am. Now, when God says, I am, he means something nobody else can mean when they say, I am. I say, I am, and what I mean to say is, I am, so long as I have air to breathe, water to drink, food to eat, so long as some natural disaster doesn't intervene, so long as somebody violently does not take my life from me, so long as some uh, immediate medical condition doesn't rob me of my life, so long as a million possible things don't happen, I am. My I am is a very tenuous thing, a very fragile thing. All anything in all of creation can say, can mean when they say I am is, I am so long as. But when God says I am, that's it. Period. Full stop. End of thought. 
When God says I am, he means I exist independently of anything else. So all of the universe could evaporate in an instant, disappear completely from creation and reality and everything, and God would still be. I am. That's how Jesus identified himself to the disciples on the lake. I am. They knew what that name meant. That phrase, ego, I me, appears 24 times in the Gospel of John. Only once is it somebody other than Jesus saying it. But the other 23 times is Jesus talking about himself. John is very deliberate in letting us know Jesus didn't hint at the fact of who he was. He was very clear, and we're going to read more of these. This is just an opening salvo in the Gospel of John. He'll say stuff like, uh, before Abraham was, I am. He's very clearly connecting himself to this sacred name of God. Where else do we find this in the Septuagint? Deuteronomy 32, 39, Moses' song at the end of Deuteronomy. And in the song, he reviews Israel's history, and then he starts sharing with Israel what God told him about, how he felt about the whole thing, how their constant insistence on turning to dead idols and inventions of humans and rejecting God Almighty, who had just rescued them from slavery in Egypt, how God was incensed at that. And what's God's word to Israel They need to know he's not like those things they call gods. He's a whole different kind of thing. Verse 39 of chapter 32. See now that I, indeed I, am he. Ego I me. Says Yahweh, and there is no God besides me. I kill and give life. I smash and I heal. None can resist my power. God in this passage not only says I am, but he also explains to those listening, and the only reason you are is me. I kill and I give life. If you are here, it's because of this I am. And then there's the other sentence, fear not. By the way, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's in the imperative. Fear not. That's also a thing God likes to say often. If we look in the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, 1, when Abram has taken this great leap of faith and left the security of his family clan and he's headed out God only knows where, and he's 75 years old and uh, has nobody to protect him, God shows up and says, Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Fear not. Genesis 15.1. In Genesis 21.17, Abraham and Sarah are unable to conceive a child even though God's promised it. It seems like it's not happening. He's nearing 100 and, and, and uh, we're nearing uh, 90 and, and they haven't been able to have, to have a kid. So finally Sarah takes her slave servant and says, uh, have sex with her and the child will treat it as ours. And he does that and Hagar has a child, Ishmael. But later on God miraculously opens Sarah's womb when she's 90 years old and she gives birth to Isaac. So uh, she insists and God confirms to Abraham, it's okay to do this. They send Hagar away. And Hagar is out there with Ishmael. 
And they're out of water, they're out of food. And she leaves her son lying under a bush and walks away because she says, I can't bear to watch my boy die. And God shows up. Genesis 21, 17, and he says to Hagar, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is, and God saved them. God said to Isaac, Genesis 26, 24, the son of Abraham, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Fast forward centuries and Judah is under pressure by Assyria and Assyria is eating the world and it looks like they're going to take over Judah as well and they are fearful of the threat of Assyria but God through Isaiah in chapter 41.10 says to Judah, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus said two things that have a very long, and I only picked a smattering of examples. I, if I had been exhaustive, you'd be exhausted by the time I was done. There are so many places where God calls himself I am, and so many times when he gives the command, fear not. have a question from these verses. Jesus, in just a few words, let his disciples know that he is God Almighty and that he would secure them from any cause for fear. Have you experienced freedom from fear because of Jesus? And if so, how? Verse 21, therefore they wanted to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Obviously at that, the moment they hear his voice, they know who it is and forget the, the whole campfire ghost stories that, okay, this is Jesus and yes, he has done it again. Yet once more he has done something impossible. Yeah, we're three or four miles from shore but he walked three or four miles on water to get to them. That's a stroll. That takes, it might have taken him an hour or two to get there. But there he is. So they, okay. They're beginning to see a pattern. Jesus does incredible stuff, impossible stuff. And they want him on the boat. They want to receive him into the boat. And here's an odd thing that only John tells us. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I've often puzzled about that. Does he mean they were like teleported? Instantly there? Maybe he's talking about this idea of and it's hard for me to not read this whole thing as a metaphor for living. I think Jesus' miracles are signs and they're illustrations of points that we are meant to understand as applicable to life in general. Jesus wasn't just proving that he could walk on water. He was proving that he is God Almighty and that if he says to you, fear not, you can fear not. 
there's no cause for fear. If God Almighty says you don't have to worry about it, you don't have to worry about it. Because there's nothing that can happen that he is not aware of and that he is not capable of addressing. So if he says fear not, it's because he is committed to take care of it. Fear not. And he doesn't get more specific than that because he doesn't need to. It doesn't matter. You could ask, should I be afraid of this or that or the other? No. You don't have to fear death itself. It will someday overtake you if Christ doesn't come before. There's no need to fear it because he secures us even in the face of death. Fear not. So they want him on the boat and the minute he steps into the boat, they're where they needed to be. I feel like the minute we invite Jesus into our lives, we've arrived at our destination. We are where we needed to be. So much of human life is filled with uncertainties and hand-wringing and worrying. Am I in the right job? Am I in the right relationship? Am I in the right this or that? Is it all going to work out? Am I making a mess of everything? And Jesus says, if you'll take me in, you will have arrived where you needed to be. I got it. I've got it taken care of. I have a final question. John said that the moment Jesus stepped into the boat, they arrived at their destination. If our lives have a destination, what part does Jesus play in it? Our lives are framed by the uncertainties that surround us on every side. So many things are beyond our control. Things we desperately need even to just continue living. Most of the time we push that fear away and we tell ourselves that we have learned the life skills necessary to navigate life and we're pretty good. We're, done. we're doing fine. We got this under control until all of a sudden that wind blows in. And all of a sudden, we don't have anything under control. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being out on a lake, although for some of you, that might have been a literal experience. But we have all at some point felt that our life was completely out of control. And the security of our lives was out of our hands. We've all faced that. And Jesus says, I'm God. Let me in and I'll take care of it. Let me give you an example of what I think is needless fear. This past year, COVID has shaped the world. And uh, thankfully, there has been a, a really worldwide concerted effort to try to address COVID. And uh, at this point, we have a number of vaccines that in extensive studies, and to this point, I don't know of it, how many vaccines, how this compares to other vaccines that have been used before, but it's been used on millions and millions of people. The data is ridiculously extensive on these vaccines. And they tell us 
that it has a 95% success rate in protecting you from COVID. There are still people who cannot handle 5% of risk, who are still unable to get out among people and, and do life because they're afraid of that 5% they can't control. I hope that's not you. Because, and I'm not saying be reckless, but I'm saying don't live in fear. Accept that life is not yours to control. And let Jesus step in. We don't control fear by becoming really good at living. By learning the skills to master living. We deal with fear by asking Jesus in. Because he's got it. That is how we deal with fear. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you. That in whatever chaos we are facing in life, whatever horrible things we are staring at, you still draw near and say, I, I can do everything, and I am telling you not to fear. Lord, help us to respond to you with faith. Help us to turn to you and open ourselves up to whatever it is you have in mind and let you become not just our security but our destination in life. You be the reason we live. You be the source of all life. You be our security. And Lord, may fear have no room in our hearts because of you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.